Hello and welcome back to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. And welcome back to the show once again, Professor Tim Bale. Tim was on only a few weeks ago talking about what opposition parties have to do to be successful. And I've invited him back so soon because of a new report into the prospects of the Liberal Democrats called Where Next for the Liberal Democrats? The report is from the think tank, the UK in a changing Europe, co-authored by Tim and a couple of his colleagues. So welcome back to the show, Tim. Thanks very much, Mark. Let's get straight to the big headline. The report is titled Where Next for the Liberal Democrats? So spill the beans. Political heaven or political hell? Which one awaits my party? (laughs) Am I allowed to say purgatory? It's actually actually not that bad. Um, There's, I think, quite a lot of potential Mm. uh, for the party to pick up seats at the next election if uh, it concentrates, I think, on those seats where it stands most chance and what the report reveals really is where those seats are uh, and that in fact there are quite a few of them Um, and also that people who worry about the Lib Dems in the light of Keir Starmer perhaps bringing the Labour Party into the centre are perhaps worrying a little bit too much because the main rivals for the Liberal Democrats in the seats that they stand most chance in are in fact the Conservatives. Um, so let's put some numbers on that. What, when you say, you know, a, there's a decent number of seats the Lib Dems have a chance of winning at the next election, um, I presume you're not thinking, you know, Lib Dem majority, you know, in Parliament is, is an option. So what's, what's the sort of number that you, that you uh, found with your colleagues in the report? Well, if you go on a um, swing and you say, well, of a 5% swing, then mm. the party would pick up 15 seats, we reckon. Mm. And if you go to the outer edge of what is generally regarded as likely, which would be a kind of 10% Mm. swing, then the party would gain an additional 14 seats. So you can say that more or less uh, they're in contention for for 30 seats, although probably only half of that uh, is is the more likely figure. And obviously that's assuming a uniform swing. One of the questions which we won't know until, well, certainly not until the exit poll and possibly not until the actual results are in at the next election is the extent to which the Lib Dems are able to buck the pattern of a uniform swing. Because yeah. in our best years, we've actually done a lot better yes. uh, in the seats we've been really going for. So 97 is the classic example. The party's national vote share actually went down, but its number of MPs more than mm. more than doubled. So it may be that, that um, if the party, you know, if we can get our targeting right, the figures towards the top end of the ranges talked about in the report are doable even on a much lower vote share than than would be required. Yes, that's right. And of course, you know, some seats are exceptional, aren't they? I mean, if you look at Dominic Raab's seat, uh, Isha Walton, I mean, you know, the Lib Dems had to come from a very, very long way to win that. It was always going to be unlikely, but the, the swing that they got there was massive. Uh, and back in in 2019 so it's always possible to do something special in 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 some seats so if if looking at the number of seats where the party is close enough to have a plausible chance of winning is a relatively positive picture in that sense that you can see the party getting back to some of its levels of previous parliamentary strength but obviously in a way some way off maybe our previous peak um what's the what's the political geography of that because that was the other thing that really struck me from your report was that it it seemed like the air there's a quite a consistency 
of of seats that the party might have a chance of winning next time and that comes with both ups and downsides which we can maybe come on to in a moment but what was the sort of political geography that you found well i think the liberal democrats are now very much obviously with the odd exception a party of the south uh, of england mm. uh, and in particular you know we identified i think what we nicknamed the kind of yellow halo as it were and these are areas of london normally in the kind of southwest of london not exclusively, um, Oxfordshire, Berkshire, Hampshire, uh, Cambridgeshire. So a kind of, you know, a yellow circle, if you like, uh, around London. Now, what's important about that is that to some extent it involves the Liberal Democrats admitting that some of their former areas of strength, particularly in the southwest, aren't really there anymore. Now, whether that's because of Brexit or for other reasons, um, you know, one can debate. Uh, but it is, I think, a case of the Liberal Democrats, as it were, you know, realising that and, and realising that they have to move on um, from those former areas of strength to concentrate on the ones, you know, where they now do stand a, a better chance. And I should say also that, of course, uh, it's not necessarily the case that they are seats in which, um, you know, the Liberal Democrats have uh, a history of winning in, in recent times. Um, if you if you look at the seats that they can win on a five percent swing, then you know clearly they have won, for example, Winchester before, but they haven't won Winchester since two thousand and ten. Um, you know, Guildford would be another example where they could win, despite the fact that they haven't won that uh, in, in you know in, in recent memory. Two thousand and five, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you don't really necessarily have to think well. You know, the, the Liberal Democrats have to have you know, won that seat back in 2010 in their heyday, if you like, to, to think that they have a chance in 2024. Mm -hmm. And there's obviously some important caveats to that Southern England pattern, Scotland being a major one, because actually quite a big proportion of the current parliamentary party, for example, mm. is from Scotland. And there are some seats where, you know, I think that we've got a reasonable chance of hoping to gain them in Scotland at the next Westminster general election so there's obviously some important exceptions to to that pattern yeah overall... absolutely absolutely and I mean East Dumbartonshire is the <laughs> obvious one <laughs> uh, you, know, you, you only just lost that yeah. unfortunately of course uh, in in so many ways but you know that should really be a very obvious target yeah. next time around and um, but what and actually East Dumbartonshire is I guess a good example of this is although it is not southern England and in therefore, to some extent, the messages that would work in, say, Guildford and in East Dumbartonshire are quite different. There is a certain degree of similarity, of sort of demographic similarity, actually, between both of those places. And, and, and in general, I think that was the thing that most struck me looking at the analysis in the report was that it felt like a national election campaign could pitch for a particular set of messages to particularly appeal to a particular group of voters and actually that would be a mes national message that could work pretty well across most of the sort of held and winnable seats in a way mm. that mm. Um, in the past I guess one of the weaknesses for the Lib Dems has been and it, I mean you can also see it as a strength in some ways one of the distinctive features maybe I should say of sometimes in the past is the Lib Dem appeal which has led to winning constituencies has been really quite different in different seats and therefore it's been quite hard for a national message to in a sense do anything much more than not damage 
the, the, our prospects in particular seats because we, you know, the messages have been so different in different seats. If there's a greater uniformity of appeal, there's a risk and a downside to that, which is about becoming a niche party for a sectional interest. Uh, but there's also potential upside of, well, actually, if there's a coherence to who, who we're after, the national campaign can actually really help benefit that especially these days where so much of campaign activity has to be on the national expense limit and not the constituency expense limit and therefore can't be tailored as much seat by seat as it used to be able to be. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. I mean, a lot of people have been arguing and, you know, there's this guy, Mark Pack, who's mm -hmm. been arguing it for some time that the Lib Dems really need to focus on and think about, you know, what is their core vote and building up that kind of core vote. And certainly if you look at um, you know the the characteristics of uh, you know the constituencies that we're talking about as the possibilities. Then um, you know it's very clear that they do contain large numbers, for example, of university graduates. Uh, and it strikes me, obviously, that kind of educated, you know, and let's be honest, probably middle class mm. uh, constituency, both in terms of the geographic constituency and in terms of the, you know, the, the type of voter yeah. we're talking about, um, should be the target for, for the Lib Dems. And that in some ways does obviously dovetail with their reputation as the party of Europe, their mm. reputation as the party of, if you like, progressive social values, because those are exactly the kinds of things that appeal to uh, some of, yep. of those voters. And, and interestingly, the, the, the figures in the report about how essentially the more graduates there are in a seat, the better the Lib Dems do, um, also suggests that on this um, continued burden of tuition fees, that that has not necessarily I mean the pattern is not the one you would expect if tuition fees was directly an immediate political problem for the party because you would otherwise think the more graduates there are and indeed more graduates often also goes with more other people employed in higher education so you know a lot of the university type constituencies are high in graduates, but also high in other people. You know, that you would you would have thought those would be the worst areas for the party if tuition. So so there is there is an interesting mismatch there, isn't there, between where the party does well and what at least some other people say about and think about the party. That yeah. it, it, tuition fee seems not to be really the issue. No, I mean I, I think tuition fees was clearly important in the Lib Dems, you know, precipitate loss of um, support mm. in 2010 and, and thereafter. But, you know, it certainly wasn't the, the only thing, the be all and end all. I mean, I think it had to do with a kind of wider concern on the part of many people who'd voted Lib Dem about the party going into coalition with the Conservatives, mm. which was something that people had never imagined. And then obviously the austerity that followed mm. on from that and some of the other policies in which the, the Lib Dems were obliged, as it were, to uh, cooperate and, and to advocate. I, I, I mean, I, I think, to be honest as well, that any one policy and its impact is going to have a, a half-life, and that half-life does you know, decay over time. And I'm not sure that it is this massive thing that people are going to hold against the Lib Dems forever and ever. Although I've no doubt, of course, that... Um, uh, the Labour Party, you know, will be using it as a stick <laughs> to mm. meet the Lib Dems with uh, forevermore. Yeah. But you're, you're quite right, there is a mismatch there. So I don't think the Lib Dems ought to, to worry too much about that. I do think, you know, the coalition to some extent is still a problem. Mm. I mean, I think having talked about a half-life, I think 
there is an extent to which voters do have quite long memories and you know some people still resent the the coalition and and what it did uh, and you know that might of course feed into the leadership contest yeah. in terms of you know does does one candidate uh, represent rather more of a break if you like from that history than another i will um deftly swerve in the interests of presidential impartiality from the direction that thought process might be headed. But just to, well, one other thing to rem remember as well about tuition fees, of course, is the collapse in Lib Dem support in 2010 happened after we went into coalition, but before any plans on tuition fees were announced. And it's, it's one of those bits of inconvenient chronology that although, you know, I've no doubt the people, for example, who on the doorstep said to me, that, oh, it's because of tuition fees, I'm not going to vote Lib Dem, you know, say, in canvassing in the 2015 election. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they were sincere in saying that. Yeah. But yeah. there is a bit of it where you think that can't really be true because you probably made up your mind to switch before we had decided what to do on, you know, on tuition fees. But, but it, there was something that you mentioned in passing there, which I think is worth digging into because of what it might mean for the next election about how people were shocked that the Lib Dems went into coalition with the Tories in 2010. Because, of course, the official and therefore obviously 100% correct Lib Dem line on that is that we had repeatedly said we would go into talks with whoever got the most votes and the most seats. And lots of journalists spent a lot of time trying to say, well, what, what if one party gets the most votes and the other party gets the most seats? What would you really do? Um, as it turned out, it was the same party that got the most votes and the most seats, and that was the party that we, you know, opened talks with. So the official, as it were, response of, you know, the, the say the Nick Clegg official historian would be to say, yeah, we were absolutely clear what we would do. People shouldn't have been surprised. Um, I think, though, as you rightly say, there is an extent to which people did feel it was a rather discordant mismatch. And so I think there's a question there about what, do we, the Lib Dems that is, have to learn for next time so that if, let's say, we do well in our target seats, we maybe get above average swing towards the Lib Dem in those target seats. And it's plausible you could have a you know, Lib Dem parliamentary party that is back above the SNP, that's a few dozen MPs, and it's a hung parliament. How do we avoid whatever we do then the day after the hung parliament is announced? being a repeat of, oh my goodness, we thought you were going to do one thing and now you've, you've done something else. What's your sort of take on why it seemed such a broken promise almost to go into coalition with the Tories in 2010? Well, I mean, I think you have to go back some way, really, and look at the way that the uh, party positioned itself, particularly under Paddy Ashdown, yeah. who was a very powerful, very important yeah. leader um, for the Lib Dems. And I mean, he made it very clear, really, that he'd abandoned that kind of equidistance uh, and that, you know, he wanted to be part of, if you like, a kind of progressive coalition. Now, that didn't mean a definite... Uh, electoral pact with the Labour Party but you know there was to some extent a nod and a wink there yeah. uh, and I think that therefore left the impression with a lot of voters that essentially the Liberal Democrats were an anti-Tory uh, party uh, and therefore in, in 2010 you know whatever they actually said mm. in the lead up to that election about the you know criteria that they would employ to make their decision uh, the, the coalition that they went into was if you like counterintuitive uh, I mean, I, I think it's going to be very, very difficult uh, in 2024, given the, uh, you know, the way that the Conservative Party has moved 
not just on economic policy during the austerity years, but also I think you know on you know cultural issues. Um, you know, this is a, a pretty right-wing conservative party mm. now, at least in, in in terms of those kind of social versus you know um, social liberal versus conservative um, principles. I think it would be quite hard for the Liberal Democrats to actually realistically suggest that they would do a deal with the Conservative Party uh, now. Yeah. And, and to be honest, I think it's probably better that they admit that, if mm. you like, uh, and once again go for that kind of progressive coalition. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it doesn't have to be a formal coalition, doesn't have to be a formal electoral pact, but I mean, I think just putting themselves on that side of politics, if you like, is probably the honest thing to do and, and perhaps actually the instrumentally best thing to do as well. It's also, I think, much easier to do now in that there are two big differences now from, I think, the run up to 2010. One is that we've got a Tory government, not a Labour government. Yeah. And so it's a lot easier for an opposition party to say, we are definitely going to turf out the current government uh, because there is a certain sort of logic and consistency to, uh, to that. But also, um, because it's a Tory government, and therefore, if our priority is to turf out the incumbent government, and therefore that means in some form we might not be fully opposed to the opposition party getting into power, um, Generally speaking, Lib Dem members, you know, if really forced to choose, most will, more will say that they're closer to Labour than will say they're closer to the Tories. So it's, it's, yeah. although it certainly wouldn't be without its controversies, it's a certainly a slightly easier position to be in. But also, crucially, um, you know, in 2010, the Labour Party was the Labour Party still of the Iraq War. Mm. And, um, and therefore, you know, Certainly, if, say, there'd been a hung parliament in 2005 at the, at the previous election, I mean, that would have been a complete nightmare yeah. for the Lib Dems because, you know, even if, say, Tony Blair resigned the day after the 20, 2005 election and yeah. succeeded by Gordon Brown, well, he was the man who signed all the checks for the Iraq war. On the other hand, the Tories led by Michael Howard, who had just led, you know, a general election campaign playing to all sorts of racist overtones on immigration. What on earth would the Lib Dems have done in Hungary? <laughs> Starmer, that is a fantastic what if, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, I, I do think, I mean, there are many amazing qualities that Charles Kennedy had as a Lib Dem leader, but I do think that in a way, that disastrous press conference he had in the 2005 general election where um, the official story was because he was newly had become a father and therefore hadn't had much sleep. Obviously, it's it's quite possible his his issues with... Alcohol addiction may have played a part as well, that he had the absolute disaster of a press conference, knock the party back hugely mm. in, in, its, in its momentum in that election campaign, which we then recovered from, but it meant we didn't do as well, near, mm. you know, probably as we would have had in Hungary. In a way, that may have also slightly saved Charles's reputation, because mm. had we done that bit better, and there had been a hung parliament, <laughs> I mean, what would we have done? <laughs> Michael yeah. Howard, you know, yeah. or Gordon Brown is. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Keir Starmer is in a very different category. You know, he's not got a track record as a minister or a prime minister that weighs him down in the same way. Yeah. And also the contrast between him and his predecessor is, you know, he is clearly much more, there is clearly much more overlap. And Lib Dems will argue a lot about how much overlap, but there is clearly much more overlap between his beliefs and Lib Dem beliefs than there was between Jeremy Corbyn's beliefs and Lib Dem 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I mean, the, the other point to make is clearly, and it's something we've talked about before, if we talk about the, the Lib Dems, you know, main rivals in most of the seats yeah. in which they're competitive, you know, they are conservatives rather than uh, Labour candidates. So it, it makes sense on the ground, actually, that, that anti-Tory line, uh, as well as, if you like, in, in terms of the national messaging on any um, potential yeah. Coalition. I mean, it's, yeah, and and looking at the um, the figures in the report, I thought they were really striking in that respect. So, of for example, the twenty nine seats in the report that the Lib Dems are nominally best placed to win, I say nominally because that's based on a simple reading of swings from last time, and of course there are local factors and all of that. So those twenty nine in yeah. practice are probably not going to be the exact top twenty nine Lib Dem target seats, but they give you a sense of the landscape in 23 of those 29 the seat uh the party currently holding the seat is the tories yeah so overwhelmingly if the lib dems go up in seat numbers at the next election it's the tories who will suffer and likewise and i did slightly double take that i hadn't misread this but there were only nine seats across the whole of the uk in which labor and the lib dems are the top two parties yeah yeah. So in nearly every seat in the country, yeah. you know, either Labour or the Lib Dems are, are, are up against somebody else as the prime, you know, the prime rival. That's right. And that, that's a big change as well, because yeah. you, know, you talk about those, those nine seats where that's the case. Back in 2010, that, that, that was the case in 76 seats. So there's... there's 95. Been... 95, it says on my copy of the report. Oh, does it? Week. Okay, okay. So, uh... <laughs> Maybe uh, anyway, a lot more, that. one way or another. Yeah, one way or another. But but that there has been, if you like, a kind of filtering process uh, mm. here, really, over the last ten years, yeah. and and that's something in some ways that the report points to. You know, it it very much does point to the fact that it's really orange slash yellow versus blue, rather than orange slash yellow versus red. Mm. Uh, and and as I say, I, I think mm. you know that means that people who worry that you know Keir Starmer might make a very big difference to um, the, the Liberal Democrats prospects are you know probably mistaken and in fact if you look historically and I don't really need to tell you this Mark but it's worth emphasizing generally speaking the Lib Dems do well when Labour does mm. um, pretty well as well now obviously that's not true at every election in mm. 2010 the, the Lib Dems did um, pretty well um, and Labour did quite badly but Generally speaking, if you if you look across you know the whole of the post-war period, uh, the the times of you know liberal revival or the times when the Lib Dems did um, pretty well was also when the Labour Party um, did quite well. Now the Iraq War and you know what happened uh, because of the financial crisis in two thousand seven two thousand and eight made a little bit of a difference to that, but I I suspect that that logic still applies. Yeah. And there's obviously a, a crucial caveat to add to that, which is these are all general tendencies. And obviously mm. within that, you know, there are some seats, Sheffield Hallam being the obvious, mm. you know, the really obvious example where uh, I, I cannot imagine the circumstances under which, you know, we won't be trying extremely hard to gain that seat from no. Labour at the, at the next general election. But the overall pattern is one very much of, you know, Lib Dem success equals Tories losing seats. Mm -hmm. The other thing that the report drew out, which I think on balance I'm not so worried about, but maybe I'm being unduly complacent in that respect, is if you look at the Tory seats that are most vulnerable to the Lib Dems, they're generally held by Tory moderates. Yes. And so, you know, 
the Lib Dems doing well at the next election might drive the Tory party even further to the extremes. And I mean, I guess that's not probably not good for politics overall. Um, but on the other hand, given that I think the idea of a hung, say, a hung parliament in which there's a Lib Dem Tory arrangement after the next election seems pretty unlikely. <laughs> and that's yeah. maybe putting it too highly. I'm yeah. not sure that a, a, a loss of the Tory moderate voice would really be a problem for the Lib Dems. In a way that, say, had the 2010 election seen a big cull of Tory moderates and mm -hmm. then a hung parliament in which the Lib Dems were in conversation with the Tories, that could have been quite a problem. So do you think that is a is there is there a booby trap waiting there for the Lib Dems or is uh, it Yeah, I mean not not necessarily. I mean I guess I'd see it as more of a problem at the election for a candidate who, you know, was representing a party, the Lib Dems, that was running a pretty kind of anti-Tory uh, campaign, uh, up against someone who was to some extent able to distance themselves as a moderate conservative from some of the more, if you like, right-wing authoritarian policies of the government. Um, you know, they could say they voted for Remain, for example, you know, their, their record on other issues might be rather different from the government's and that might make it slightly more difficult, I guess, in a close race for uh, a Lib Dem candidate yeah. to, to overcome them. I mean, I mean, I guess you would perhaps be expecting some of those MPs to be looking for a series of totemic votes on which they can rebel to be able yeah. to have a story to tell. I, I mean, it's foolish to predict with confidence what's going to happen in politics, but I think so far it's not obvious that that group of more moderate MPs who are vulnerable to the Lib Dems are voting differently in Parliament. And so no, no, the way Boris true. Johnson reacts to to you know to to disloyalty or maybe the way that Dominic <laughs> Cummings reacts to disloyalty is such that I'm not sure there will be the political space for those MPs no. to try to carve out a distinctive no, you know, no a distinctive personality that maybe gives them a chance to hang on no and I mean given you know given the fact that actually personal votes aren't normally that huge anyway I, I would always suggest to an MP that anyone who thinks that by voting this way or that on a particular issue in Parliament um, you know, will save their seat, if you like. Uh, you know, I would always counsel them against doing that. Uh, it doesn't seem to work. I mean, there's some evidence, for example, from um, previous parliaments of Labour MPs going against the policy on Iraq, hoping to some extent that it might save their seats. And it, it, it doesn't really make very much difference in the end. And of course, the thing that is a real problem now in a way that wasn't you know, even 10 years ago, and certainly longer ago, is the extent to which, again, the amount of campaigning that happens in marginal seats that goes against the national expense limit and not the constituency expense mm. limit. And mm. so it's a lot harder to run on a different message as an MP now. You can't really nuance it. I mean, back in, say, the 1997 general election, there were a whole load of Tory Eurosceptics <laughs> who ran on very different messages in their constituency from the official John Major message. Now, that probably didn't really do a lot to help them save their seats, but they were at least able to give it a try. Yeah. These days, you, I mean, I guess you can maybe imagine national Tory messaging that mysteriously doesn't mention Boris Johnson <laughs> in those seats, but there's not that possibility to play up the local MP in a way that I think is a big issue for just the health of politics overall. And I think it's one of the real mm. failings of the Electoral Commission that actually the Electoral Commission essentially seems to be a happy bystander to this huge nationalisation 
mm-hmm. of of politics. I mean, the, the 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 other thing worth bringing up there is, of course, that while it might make sense for the Lib Dems to uh, see the Conservatives as their main rival mm-hmm. in you know particular mm-hmm. seats uh, in terms of Westminster contests, you know. I can imagine that there will be places in which, you know, one might say, well, try telling that to the local party because the local mm-hmm. party is made up of councillors and people who, you know, are friends of councillors or who want mm-hmm. to be councillors. And, and for some of them, uh, Labour as much of a kind of thorn in their side and, and the opposition as, as the Conservatives. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's going to need to be, if you like, a, <laughs> a rather kind of Janus face uh side to, to, to politics where you know you, you differentiate who your rivals are at the local level from who your rivals are when we're thinking about Westminster. Yeah. And yeah I mean there are there's a fair number of I mean just really badly run Labour local authorities um, and you know absolutely you know the Liberal Democrat teams in those places are not going to suddenly suddenly think oh you know Labour's all all lovely and warm and cuddly and and there's nothing to campaign against, you know, because just day in, day out, they see how badly run the, the council is, for example. But of course, it is possible to sensibly mix and match what effort goes where at different levels of elections. And of course, if, as is quite likely, I guess the next general election is on the same day as a round of local elections, that may be harder uh, to do than if it's a freestanding. But nonetheless, there's clearly possibilities mm. for mm. sort of mixing, mixing and matching efforts. I do think, though... There is a big strategic choice here, which is about should the Lib Dems, as it were, try to double down on our areas of growing strength? Because you say, well, look, under first past the post, a majority of one gets you the seat. Having a nice share of the vote, but not winning sort of counts for nothing. It doesn't quite count for nothing because national vote share has a bit of an impact on politics and state funding and all that. But you know, if you've got a chance of winning, that's where you've really got to double down your efforts. Or the alternative is to say, actually, no, we should be really worried about the having a much broader base and therefore, for example, seats that the Lib Dems won in 2010 that maybe voted leave in the Euro referendum, where the party is a long way off winning, looking at the 2019 results, and actually you know, addressing the areas of, of weakness should be what the party concentrates on um what's your what's your sort of slightly dispassionate external take on that question about should we just go hell for leather in those relatively limited and quite demographically distinctive areas of strength or or is there a real case for piling in effort elsewhere partly for maybe motivated by wanting a a you know a broader, a more socially representative mix of, of areas the party is, is going for? Well, I mean, I'd like to say it's not a zero-sum game, but of course it is a zero-sum game because there's only so many resources that you have, both in terms of manpower, headspace, uh, and finance, of course, as well. So, I mean, I, I am very much, I have to admit, in the first camp mm. on, on that particular uh, question. I mean, I think it would be much, much better for the party to concentrate on those uh, seats it stands a chance of winning. That doesn't mean it has to give up on the others altogether by any stretch of the imagination. But I think the Lib Dems have a very good record, actually, of building out of areas of strength. That's always what they've been uh, able to do. But 
having said that it can't just be about geography as it were it also does have to be about the kinds of voters that the Lib Dems um, you know think are, are worth appealing to and in doing that to some extent you will also pick up support in other areas even if they're not necessarily the ones that are going to kind of tip you over the edge uh in terms of seats yeah. and and of course there are elections at all levels yeah. and and so in a way although it's not a zero-sum game i think there is a slight degree to which the question can be legitimately sidestepped in terms of saying that you know there are liberals in communities all across the country and therefore we can win everywhere what we can win varies though in some places we can win means actually there's one ward that maybe can be the first Lib Dem ward on a council that currently has no Lib Dems on it. In other places it may be about holding the parliamentary seat or gaining the parliamentary seat so that so that what what we can win varies from place to place and from election to election but I think within that pattern for any particular election coming up it is uh, the areas of, of strength which you have to concentrate on if it is a first-past-the-post election. Mm. And, and obviously that, if it's a first-past-the-post election, is an important caveat because there's, for example, Scottish local government, all by STV. And, and, and I think the one exception to that is a council that has no Lib Dems on it versus a council that has one Liberal Democrat on it is such a big difference in terms of things like local media coverage, knowledge of issues of what's going on, the events that you get then invited to to have a party presence at because there is now a little bit, that there is a, I think the one exception where you might say, well, actually, look, it's not really an area of strength, but maybe we should really go to town to try and win it, is is in some cases, you know, to get that first council seat. And, and there's a good example of this, a really good example from North London with um, Anton, uh, who won a council by-election in Brent, uh, a few months back, I in fact interviewed him on an earlier episode of this podcast. And Anton's ward on paper, you know, was not really anywhere, didn't look anything like winnable. But Anton, helped by the fact that it was a council by-election, piled in a huge amount of effort, did a great job at getting people like me to turn up between Christmas and New Year to campaign to help him. So, and pulled off a fantastic victory. And you can really see the benefits in terms of the mm. higher profile of the Lib Dems in the borough as yeah. a result. Yeah, and of course, obviously, at local elections where, you know, the turnout is is much uh, less, uh, you know, where you can overturn actually quite big percentage majorities with uh, a fairly small number of absolute votes, if you like, um, it, it is worth trying, I agree. And of course, you know, your areas of strength have to begin somewhere. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the list of, of winnable seats and you looked at these, you know, 20, 30 years ago, some of them would have seemed absolutely impossible. Um, you know, uh, so parties always have to you know, begin, uh, you know, sometimes from nothing in some seats. Uh, and, you know, in, in a few decades time, they can become real possibilities. So you're right. You shouldn't give up anywhere. Yeah. And also, I mean, it, it's it's the other element of the, you know, the growth in the number of seats at the Westminster level at which the Lib Dems are quite strong is has been really promising, you know, between 2017 and 2019. But it's still a long way short mm -hmm. of the 2010 levels. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, in 2010, there were nearly 140 seats where the party got over 30 percent of the vote. By 2017, that had fallen to only 28. Yeah. And 
my in 2019 it rebounded back up to 50 mm. um and the thing that strikes me about that is those 50 seats will first that's a long way short of 140 yeah. um it's still it's also that's just you can't be a successful national party if it's only 50 seats you know by definition we have to be doing things and in some way succeeding even in seats at which we're at a Westminster level we're quite weak which is why you know taking elections at all levels seriously is so important to get more of those seats up yeah I think that's but a really the, good point the upside yeah. is that you know this coming back to where we were initially actually if that 50 seats you know if that's 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 not a bad starting point for the next general election campaign in terms of how many MPs the party could you realistically hope it might have and I think that's that's really crucial for people to feel that, you know what, we could be very much back in the Westminster game at the next election. Mm -hmm. And it's not just a matter of, you know, slog your guts out for 30 years and then eventually we might be back on the stage. And certainly, obviously, the other thing to do is to select for those seats uh, that are winnable as early as possible, because, you know, mm -hmm. all the research suggests that incumbency does give an advantage and particularly yeah. for you know new mps and you know as soon the sooner as it were you can disrupt that yeah. uh, the better so I, I fear this is all quite comforting news in many ways for the lib dems so my final question which i i get, gave uh, tim a little bit of advance warning off so i'm slightly scared as to what answer you're gonna you're gonna come up with for this but you know it's always tempting for people to read what they want into research findings um, so what do you think, Tim, is the most challenging finding for the Lib Dems in your research? So the one that people like me might be tempted to gloss over or ignore, but shouldn't? Well, I guess if you're being pessimistic, then you would have to point to the fact that actually the Lib Dems don't have a fantastic record of holding seats uh, where they have new candidates. So where the MP yeah. is retiring uh, for some reason. Uh, and you're bringing a new candidate in, the, the Lib Dems sometimes have difficulty uh, holding those seats, you know. So the, for the Lib Dems, incumbency, you know, a personal vote, knowledge of the candidate, and sometimes a high-profile candidate can be very, very important. So if you're going to make that transition between, you know, an MP who's already sitting in the seat uh, and being replaced by someone, you need to make that transition as, as soon as possible because that can be a difficulty for the Lib Dems. The other thing I'd add is something I, I've already mentioned and, and we've talked about it, but it is worth stressing uh, again, is that you know, there will be places where you know, the local party will find it very difficult to believe that they shouldn't be you know, socking it to uh, Labour as much as the Conservatives at a Westminster election. Uh, because that's what they do on the local council. But they have to, as you say, um, in some ways, create a kind of division of labour in their minds uh, when they're thinking about, on the one hand, the local situation, and on the other hand, the Westminster yeah. situation. And, I mean, and that those local parties themselves, actually, in a sense, don't necessarily need to even do that themselves, because you know, in, in some of the sort of labour, badly run labour fiefdoms, you know, if we're able to build up to be able to challenge labour at future general elections, I mean, that's all well and good yeah. as well. I mean, some of the councils are very badly run and some of the MPs are not that impressive either, frankly. <laughs> um, but, that, but obviously it's possible for the, to, to, to both give encouragement and support to such campaigns whilst also maybe putting more of the money into the most winnable you know, the most winnable seats. I guess thinking about your pessimism in a way, 
the situation could be almost worse than that for the Lib Dems because it's not just about incumbents and so on. It's also that at the last election, there were some quite high profile candidates who either, in some cases, because they had previously been an MP in that seat, in other cases, for other reasons, who probably did garner quite a personal vote. And therefore, it's, there's a whole set of other seats where if that particular candidate doesn't stand again, mm. there may be a similar, a similar negative effect for the party. And that does suggest that getting candidate selection is particularly uh, important. Yes. Yeah, so, and I mean, uh, funnily yeah. enough, I would point to where I live, which is Eastbourne, mm. um, which of course is a sort of ultimate now Lib Dem <laughs> conservative marginal in some ways because it's swapped between the parties so often in recent elections. You know, you've had Stephen Lloyd there, who, who's you know, been the MP, lost, then came back again, et cetera, et cetera. Now, presumably, I'm not sure, but you know, if, if he doesn't stand again, then the Lib Dems are going to have to find someone who you know, can dig in as successfully as he did locally in order to challenge a, a Conservative candidate who you know, lost to Stephen Lloyd, mm. beat Stephen Lloyd, then lost to him and then beat him again. So yeah. uh, it, it, it re candidate selection, you know, is really, really important and getting it done early is really important. Yep. Okay, that is a really good positive note that we found in my deliberately attempt to be pessimistic question. <laughs> there. So thank you very much for that, Tim. That's been really fascinating. Um, I will include a link to the report that we've been talking about, which is chock full of lots of uh, fun graphs as well as some quite easy to read text it's not a it's not a full-on uh, dull academic paper by any means uh, so I'll include a link to that in the show notes people can also find Tim on Twitter at Prof Tim Bale myself at Mark Pack and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast so do look out in the show notes for those follow-up links and of course if you like listening please do tell others about the podcast or even make a donation to help with the costs of running this podcast by visiting nevermindthebarcharts.com and picking donate in the menu at the top left. Thank you until next time. Mm -hmm.